The passenger Indians together with the free Indians were able to engage in these commercial uh, activities. But this caused quite an amount of antagonism from the white colonists who feared competition and the growing numbers of this new race that seemed to them to be left unrestricted in colonial society. Welcome to A History of Xenophobia, from the gold mines to the rise of the far right today. My name is Ariel Glynn and I'm the host of this History Hope podcast series. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhub.ie. Dr. Catherine Pillay is a senior lecturer in sociology at KwaZulu-Natal University in South Africa. She studied psychology before completing her PhD in sociology. So like many of those interviewed for this podcast series, Catherine has an interdisciplinary background. She writes and teaches on a variety of subjects, including race, identity, xenophobia, migration, and contemporary sociological theory. She has published extensively on South Africans of Indian descent, including the reception Indian laborers and immigrants met with in Natal and South Africa in the second half of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century, something that we will discuss in detail in this podcast. She's also focused on the Indian community in South Africa in more recent years, and we'll touch on that towards the end of the podcast. Catherine is also the co-editor of Relating Worlds of Racism, Dehumanization, Belonging and the Normativity of European Whiteness which he co-edited with Philomena Ased, Karen Faka harson and Elisa Joy White. The book came out with Palgrave Macmillan. Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. So the first Indian indentured migrants arrived in Natal in late 1860. Could you tell us a bit about why they came and more generally about the context in which they arrived in? Thank you, Ariel, and thank you so much for having me. So for those who are not aware of the background, um, at that particular time in history, um, when the Indian indentured laborers first arrived, slavery had been abolished. And so the British Empire devised the indentured labor scheme as a new form of labor acquisition for the colonies. So Indians then were brought by the British from the subcontinent to Southern Africa between 1860 and 1911. And that was for the sole purpose to fulfill a labor shortage in the colony of Natal at the time. Uh, so while these indentured workers, they labored under conditions that you would say is, is tantamount to slavery, but it couldn't be termed that at the time because in theory, they were under a labor contract and they were receiving payment, which at the time I think was about 10 shillings a month. Um, and they were initially told that they would have a contract for five years. And once their indenture was complete, they would be given a piece of crown land, as it was called. They could re-indenture, hire themselves out, change residence or be given a free passage back to India. So ownership of land in Natal and prospects of wealth were the main reasons that enticed Indians to come to the colony. Although we do know now as well that uh, there were many that were unwillingly forced into indenture. We also know that uh, there were indentured laborers who, in fact, did not receive the payment promised and none of them received the land that was promised uh, once their terms of indenture had ended. Um, now, in addition to the indentured laborers, there was a second stream of migrants that followed under the colony's ordinary immigration laws. 
um, and they were mainly Muslim and Hindu traders from the province of uh, Gujarat. Um, there were some Christian Indians who uh, were teachers, interpreters, and also traders that migrated to Southern Africa at that time. Um, and the second wave were, was referred to as passenger Indians because they paid for their own passage to Southern Africa at the time. So there were two groups that migrated um, around the same time. What well, you mentioned there about indentured labor and its relationship with slavery, um, I, I know I used to use a, a reading from Tayyab Mahmoud that um, was entitled Cheaper Than a Slave, Indentured Labor, Colonialism and Capitalism, and it kind of highlights some of the issues that you brought up there. Um, but in your article uh, entitled The Coolies Here Exploring the Construction of an Indian Race, in uh, quotation marks in South Africa, you note through your historical analysis of the Natal Mercury newspaper from 1860 to 1910 that there was some opposition from certain European settlers to the idea of bringing in indentured migrants to Natal. So could you outline who was in favour and who was against and, and what were their reasons or rationale for their views? Yes, yeah, so the sugar planters or the sugar barons, they were at the forefront of petitioning for Indian immigration to Natal. So they argued that the sugar enterprise was vital to the future progress of the colony. And they were desperate at that particular time for cheap labour to farm these lands. Um, and the local African people refused to engage in what they considered to be arduous labor for that pittance of a pay that was offered at the time. So the planters then, they persistently expounded the economic benefits of indentured labor. And they cited how the Mauritian economy had flourished since the arrival of uh, indentured labor there. But then there was also the strong resistance to indenture from colonists. And it was cloaked in the sphere of immigrants bringing in disease and sickness to the colony. Very much the same xenophobic rhetoric that we hear today, in fact, whether it's in the EU or the US or South Africa for that matter. So if it wasn't for their labor power, Indian immigrants would not have been added to the population in the colony at that time. Yeah, and, and it really was a global phenomenon, very much linked to the British Empire. You know, you mentioned Mauritius there. We know about Fiji and the Caribbean and all these other places that were uh, influenced by this this kind of uh, new migration in a sense. Um, so how, how did European colonists view Indian immigrants and what did Indian immigrants think of their life in Natal? Okay, so on the one hand, they were viewed by the sugar capitalists as merely bodies of labor. They were referred to, I think, in one instance as bodies of foreign labor. So they were viewed merely as bearers of labor. There was no thought of them as being human beings, as being carriers of experiences or knowledge other than that of being workers. So there was no commentary made in any of the newspapers or any of the reports on the sacrifices they would have to endure to salvage this ailing economy in the colony. So when you read the narratives about them in the newspapers or the reports written at the time, uh, they are referred to in some cases as assets of the board. So representing assets and liabilities. Um, so their value in the colony it lay only in what they could provide for the enrichment of the colony, of the government and of the sugar planters. And there was a report um, written in 1887, which basically uh, referred to uh, them as um, uh, or presented them as a statement of Indians who, have, who had returned to India. So it was presented in very much the same format 
that you would present in a, a statement in accounting purposes, right? So each line item represented a person, much like a commodity, and that person was given a value. And their sum total added up to a number in pounds. So they were essentially dehumanized, right? So this was how the sugar planters and the colonial government view them, merely as workers. Now, with all the reporting that had taken place prior to their arrival, there was already an image um, of this abject Indian immigrant in the minds of the people that resided in the colony, right? So uh, the newspaper, The Mercury, uh, when they were reporting on the arrival of the first indentured laborers, they referred to them, and I, I quote, as a queer, comical, foreign-looking, very Oriental-like crowd, end quote. So they were also referred to as a different race, a new and strange race. Um, and they were seen as the other, as being uh, clearly separate from the other races that were already inhabiting the colony. Uh, but what was also emphasized was their foreignness. And this prominence and stress on their foreignness is noticeable throughout the decades in media reportage. So this is how they were viewed by the rest of the European colonists um, in Natal. Now, in terms of what the Indian immigrants thought of their life in Natal, um, the first group uh, that returned to India after their term of indenture was complete, they retold stories of misery. They complained about beatings, unfair treatment from their colonial masters. They were subject to contractual abuses. Legal action was taken against them for laziness and for desertion. Um, they could not travel more than two miles, which is about three kilometers from the estate without an employer's permission, even if they were on their way to complain about said employer. Um, and they could not refuse to do any work. They could not demand higher wages or leave their employer. And at times they had to work uh, 16 to 18 hour days as well. So instead of the many promises of wealth that they expected, most of them only encountered poverty and being subject to a master. So this ill treatment, poor living conditions. Um, so of the 342 um, laborers that first arrived uh, on the shores of Natal, just over half um, stayed on or, uh, after their terms of indenture had uh, ended and the rest were repatriated uh, to India in 1871. And I think you note that they, um, their reports on their experience in South Africa and Natal were, were very negative, those who did return. Absolutely, very negative. And in spite of those reports and in spite of the atrocities, the system of indenture continued until 1911. In your article, you talk about the fact that because they were isolated, you, you know, you mentioned there that they couldn't travel that much. They were usually working on sugar plantations, so they're in rural locations. So there isn't that much interaction with uh, European colonists living in Natal, apart from their employers. Whereas soon after the indentured, the first indentured migrants arrive, you have so-called free immigrants from India arriving. So could you tell us a bit about um, the, rea the reaction to those uh, so-called free uh, immigrants? So they were the indentured laborers, they were the passenger Indians who are the merchants and the traders, and then they were the free immigrants. Now the free immigrants were the ones that uh, stayed on in the colony after their terms of in indenture had ended, right? Um, so as the system of indenture grew, so too did the number of free immigrants in the colony, right? Uh, so those who opted to remain. 
Um, so, for example, in 1883 alone, all 4,548 Indians whose five-year term of indenture had expired did not re-indenture or return, right? Um, and then in 1869, the first passenger Indians arrived in the colony. And so the passenger Indians together with the free Indians were able to engage in these commercial uh, activities. But this caused quite an amount of antagonism from the white colonists who feared competition and the, and the growing numbers of this new race that, were, that seemed to them to be left unrestricted in colonial society and which also threatened to outnumber white people in the colony at the time. Uh, so the Indian presence in the colony until this point was only seen in terms of labor with no foresight as to how these indentured laborers would become settlers once their term of indenture had um, ended. So uh, the, during the debates on whether Indian labor should be in introduced in the colony, the newspaper, The Mercury at the time, did its best to thwart any implications that the introduction of Indian laborers would bring disease because the focus at that particular stage was solely on economics. But once their contracts had come to an end, the Indian immigrants were accused of being carriers of disease. So the words in the mercury were uh, words like dirty, influx, disease, epidemic, crime, filth. And these words were used in the narratives that were written about them in the mercury. Uh, and again, similar to words used in contemporary xenophobic uh, discourse when referring uh, in South Africa, for instance, to foreign African migrants. Um, so there was an us and them dichotomy that was created uh, encouraging anxieties and fears amongst the white colonists. Uh, they feared being swamped by millions of Indians if they were to be given political rights. And they feared that Indians would be taking over the colonies and whites would become extinct. And those were the exact words that were being used at that particular point in time. Yeah, it sounds very familiar to what we, we looked at in relation to Australia, for instance. You know, the fact that they saw this um, populous China relatively close to them uh, with immigrants coming from there and they felt that oh if we don't stop this now we could be overrun and these so-called white men's countries could be threatened and um, but it sounds also like a quite a diverse um, group of Indians you know you talk about the indentured migrants you talk about the free migrants so those who remained afterwards who didn't have to work on the plantations and those passenger um, Indians, you know, merchants and traders and things like that. So it was quite diverse in terms of class, uh, background. Um, w was there any sense of unity amongst that community? Or did they unify um, because of the opposition they faced? So they had to unify. So what was surprising to the merchant class that arrived you know, years later, and even the professional class like Gandhi, who was a lawyer, uh, they were surprised that these different classes of people, right, although all considered Indian, uh, would be treated the same, right? So initially, um, the Natal Indian Congress, which was formed um, later on to deal with these issues um, uh, the, of discrimination against mainly the merchant class, right, because they needed to uh, operate seamlessly in uh, the economic system in Natal, and they couldn't do it with all the restrictions that were being put in place. So in that way, uh, they had to band together um, 
to, to fight this discrimination because it affected all of them equally. So it wasn't just discrimination against the indentured laborers who are the lowest skilled. It affected, it affected everyone. Yeah, as, as Gandhi had wrote about, I think, at the time and, um, you know, in some of his protests. But in the podcast series, we, we've had a lot of theoretical kind of discussions with scholars about what causes nativism and xenophobia. Is it bottom-up opposition from, let's say, people on the ground, or is it top-down from you know, caused by political rhetoric? And you deal extensively, as you just mentioned, with the media's role and their work. And often you kind of find the media is somewhere in between the two. Um, and what role did the media have in debates about Indian immigration in, in the late 19th and early 20th century Natal? Yeah, so as we know, the media is never neutral, right? And it was the same in this case. So let's take the newspaper, The Mercury, for instance, right? This newspaper was owned and controlled by the Robinson family, and they had migrated to the colony of Natal in 1850. John Robinson, who was the first editor of The Mercury, was also a politician, and he served as Natal's first prime minister in 1893. So the paper then was not a politically neutral vehicle at that stage, but it spoke mainly to a literate, English-speaking, white, middle-class audience. And it wrote in favor of the interests of the sugar barons during the colonial period. And the newspaper was uh, closely al aligned to the sugar planters, especially the sugar baron J.R. Saunders, who was at the forefront of petitioning for Indian immigration, so much so that he considered himself, uh, J.R. Saunders, the father of Indian immigration, um, and so the newspaper then it propagated the interests of these sugar capitalists and uh, it continued into the union and into apartheid as well. So while I would say in the union years from 1910 onwards, the Mercury assumed a more liberal position in relation to the policies of the day. Their reporting suggests, though, that while they advocated for social change, it they published um unprogressive right-wing reform. Um, and then into apartheid, they uh, basically perpetuated the na narrow racial stereotypes of the government of the day. So I would say then that the media has been influenced by the political courses of the various time periods. And also it reflects their changing readership and their, uh, their changing base. Uh, yeah, I wonder what, what's the legacy of uh, Saunders, this person you mentioned, because I know um, Gordon Chang, for instance, has written about Stanford, Leyland Stanford, you know, who was kind of a similar type of figure in California, who often was in favor of um, Chinese immigration. But at times, because he was a politician as well, he, he could be quite um, anti or uh, Indian at times, or sorry, anti-Chinese at times, depending on the situations. So w was Saunders a similar type of figure? Yes, so you have to know that uh, the sugar planters were in favor of having Indian labor, not necessarily of having Indian people uh, stay on in the colony after their usefulness was complete, you know? So these were all similar. They, they were all similar in their beliefs on uh, the purpose of Indian immigration. It was, it was to fulfill a specific purpose. Um, and what happened to Indian uh, immig immigrants after that was not their concern or was their concern when they began competing on an equal footing with the white colonists in the Natal economy? Yeah, it, it almost reminds me of 
the uh, famous quote from Max Frisch. He was a Swiss uh, writer and novelist who, who talked about um, the fallout in, in Europe from um, guest workers. You know, the, and he has this quote saying, we wanted workers, but we got people. You know, it sounds quite familiar, you know, that as you outlined near the start, you know, it's very much capital, capital, economic kind of um, rationales, whereas there was no social aspect. But then these problems arise because uh, they're not just workers, they're, they're real people with real normal lives to live. Um, Indians who came to Natal were often referred to as, quotation marks, coolies. Um, could you tell us a bit about the original meaning of the word and, and how it, you argue, quote, became imbued with racist overtones and stereotypes of specifically Indian immigrants? Yes, yeah, so apart from the term Eastern laborer, which was often used to describe them, the term coolie was used predominantly. Uh, prior to their arrival, it was used to describe these Indian laborers that were about to come, and it was used almost exclusively once they reached the shores of colonial Natal. Um, and it was used historically in India in reference to people who performed low-paying jobs, mainly unskilled labor, and also in reference to people who carried bags at chain stations, right? Um, so this term was not only used in the media in Natal, but it was also used in all official documentation and legislation. So, for example, the laws governing the immigration of the indentured Indians were referred to as coolie laws, such as coolie law number 14 of 1859, which was the law that made it possible for the introduction of uh, Indian indentured labor into the colony. And in addition to this, the recruiters in India were referred to as coolie agents. But the word itself, when used in the colony, took on very negative and racist uh, connotation and was applied not just uh, to the indentured laborers who did engage in low-paying work, but also to the merchant class and that arrived thereafter and also professional people, like I said earlier, like Gandhi, who was a lawyer. Um, so the stereotypes attached the term were that of a servile, docile, contaminating race that would harm or corrupt the colony in some way. So the word ultimately became a racial slur and is still considered as such in South Africa today. Is it still used by some? It's a, it's a racial slur like the N-word in the United States or the K-word in South Africa. It's not... Uh, it's it's used in a derogatory way and you can report people to the Human Rights Commission if they are found to be using the word. So, yeah, it is a it is a racial slur. It's hard not to use the word when we when we are writing historically, because, like I said, that's the word that's used to, de, to define, uh, describe every piece of legislation um, you know, the reports and things like that. Yeah, for for the course I mentioned to you before we started that I teach about the history of nativism, we tried to come up with a guide to language because of the fact that so many of the primary sources, you know, contain these, um, these terms that today just aren't acceptable, but at the time were quite white, would, would have been used widespread in a widespread way. Um, Something, you know, you mentioned about the white settlers, but you also touched on the African um, people who lived in Natal as well. Um, you know, it was, it was quite a multicultural area in terms of, you know, British, Dutch, Africans, Indians all coming together. But the historian Heather Hughes has written about the reaction of Africans, local Africans to the arrival of Indians. And she, she quotes uh, John 
Lange Libelele Dube in 1907, who was the founding president of the South African Native National Congress, which later became the ANC, as saying, quote, We know by sad experience how beneath our very eyes our children's bread is taken by these Asiatics, how whatever little earnings we derive from Europeans go to swell the purses of these strangers with whom we seem obliged to trade, end quote. Um, and I know that that was influenced a bit by uh, Christian missionaries, American Christian missionaries attached to, to where Dubé was from. But what were relations like between Africans and, and uh, Indians and how did this change over time? So this relationship was complex, right? So we have to remember that it was against an existing backdrop of inequality and racial hierarchy that indentured labor was introduced into the colony of Natal. So the British colonists believed in their innate superiority and the corresponding innate inferiority of the local African people, right? And that God had brought them there to civilize the natives and to improve their backwardness. Um, so the discourse was constructed in such a way so that all forms of oppression and exclusion that was meted out to the local African people were, were justified, right? So excluding them from the franchise uh, was considered normal and appropriate. So from early on, there were comparisons then made between uh, the Indian immigrants and the local African population, basically putting them against one another, right? So you'd see um, a comparisons made between the servile race uh, of Indian immigrants and uh, speaking about the African population as lazy and, uh, you know, again, like I said, backward and using those kinds of words. So there were there was always this comparison and putting them against each other. And so, like we said earlier, the media was this principal transmitter of information because uh, Indians lived on these sugar estates and they were so far away from any of the other races. So the only uh, people they interacted with uh, that were of different races, whites and uh, black people, were actually on the plantations themselves, right? So whatever idea people had of uh the Indian immigrants were from the media, right? So the stereotypes then that were presented in the media became reified in the minds of the people. So, and that colored their kind of uh, relationships and interactions with both white and African people um, in the colony. Um, and so there was a xenophobic rhetoric towards Indians from that was consistently employed from the time the first indentured laborers uh, arrived. Uh, it was prevalent and blatant in the media and political discourse, and it was ultimately written into the legislation. So uh, these immigrants and their descendants, 50 years after their first arrival, were still deemed to be foreign, strange, alien, and ultimately a menace to colonial society. And this was it was seen in this way by the local African people as well, right? So the colonists, uh, using the media, using the legislation, constantly employed these kinds of terms to describe this new group of people that arrived in the colony, right? And so they were seen this way by the people that were living and residing in the colony. So by the time the National Party took office, uh, uh, and apartheid was uh, officially a uh, policy of government in 1948, Indians were still not considered citizens of the country, right? The vast majority of whom had been born in the country. And so repatriation, which is the wrong word, at that particular point in time, it still was an option for the state. So you had over 85% of the uh, uh, people being who are referred to as Indians having been born in the country, 
but they were being asked to repatriate, right? <laughs> to go back to a country that they did not know, a language they did not speak. Uh, so it was only in 1961 that Indians became a permanent part of the population when all attempts to repatriate them had failed. And also the apartheid government did not want that intense scrutiny on the country at that particular time because of the legislation and the segregation that it was employing. Um, now I'm saying all of this to get to the point that uh, more than a century after the first arrival of indentured laborers, the perceptions of them as other endured. So uh, despite Indians being given official status as a permanent population group, there's always been the sense of impermanence around Indians, which is still prevalent today, right? So um, anti-Indian sentiment, which is uh, uh, resonant with apartheid and the political eras before it, it still exists. So they still perceive as a people that are not belonging or essentially associated with another country. And this has complicated the interactions between African and Indian people. Uh, and so day-to-day -day interactions may appear well and fine, but there's this idea of foreignness of South Africans of Indian descent that gets exploited by certain segments of society, especially during political campaigns. And also it rears its ugly head during times of tension and stress in the country. So it's that... Uh, in uh, this, this sense of foreignness, like I'm saying, of seeing people as not belonging and not legitimate heirs to the land. Was this position raised again in the early 1970s? You know, when in Uganda, for instance, um, the, those of Indian background were, were also being forced to leave. And there was in, in other places like Kenya, there was also hostility. Was this the case for the, for the South African Indian community at the time? So at various points in time, uh, and especially like I'm saying during these points of uh, stress and tension, um, you'd hear this rhetoric coming from certain segments of society uh, in, I think it was around 2002 or 2000, and, yeah, it was around there, uh, there was a, a playwright who basically drew on uh, exactly what she's speaking about, of how Idi Amin um you know, uh, sent or uh, got rid of the Indians. Uh, and so the same thing, there was this rhetoric of this is what needs to happen now. A few years ago, there was a very popular politician who spoke about uh, putting Indians back on a boat to India, right? And this is now five or six generations of uh, Indians living in South Africa. So the sense of impermanence is, is always there and it uh, rears its head. So like I'm saying, in daily interactions it appears fine. But if there is a point of stress in the country or there's tension around a certain issue, then this comes up again. I, I know we've um, concentrated quite a lot on the article I mentioned that you wrote about um, exploring the construction of the Indian race in South Africa, but you also have looked at places of uh, the Indian community since from 1948 till the 1990s and, and even more recently, um, where, where you outlined this in, in more detail. But you've also, as I referred at the start of the podcast, uh, contributed and co-edited this book on, on whiteness. And so I wondered how um, this opposition to Indians and Africans brought Britain and Boer, uh, our Dutch, um, together. Because, you know, Marilyn Lake and, and Henry Reynolds in, in their Drawing the Colour line the global color line say that, you know, in the wake of the second South African war at the turn of the 20th century, 
um, th this brought the different white communities together because of their uh, fear of um, the franchise being granted to Indians. So, so how significant was so-called whiteness for the Union of South Africa? No, absolutely. So preserving white supremacy and white comfort was the bedrock of all the legislation that was enacted during colonialism into the Union of South Africa and into apartheid. Uh, Jan Smuts, he was a minister in the Union government. He gave a speech in 1910 and he said, and I quote, the whole meaning of the Union of South Africa is this. We are going to create a nation, a nation which will be of composite character, including Dutch, German, English and Jew. And whatever white nationality seeks refuge in this land, all can combine, all will be welcome, um, end quote. So the vision of the Union government effectively was to establish South Africa as a white nation. Right? And this was further emphasized by Louis Borta, who was the first prime minister of the Union. And he stated that their program was to make a great white man's land of South Africa for ourselves and for generations to come. So which they ultimately did do. Right. So he argued for one white race. And that was bringing together, uh, like you said, both the British settlers and uh, the, the and their descendants and the Dutch settlers and their descendants. So. The union, in other words, uh, was also a union of English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking white people. So Indians at that particular time, they did not feature in the nation-building uh, narrative. And Smuts also, he confirmed this when he said that we whites are a handful and we do not want Asia to come in. So Indians residing in the union during this period and potential immigrants from India, they were characterized often as contaminants or complications who threatened the white, white rule in South Africa. So that period 1910 to 1948, that union period is still a, a, a period of uncertainty regarding the status of Indians in South Africa. And there were further anti-Indian laws that were passed uh, in an attempt to persuade Indians to return or emigrate to India or to renew their term of indenture. But the one thing the, they did not want was to have these free Indians residing in South Africa at that particular point in time. And, and you mentioned how this led to segregation in, in certain places like the Transvaal and Natal. You know, you talk about uh, in the Mercury, these mentions of so-called Asiatic bazaars. Uh, so, so this endured, presumably, um, for a long time. And, and even you've kind of touched on the fact that daily day-to-day -day interactions are, are fine, uh, unproblematic, but then if there are any economic crises or political crises that sometimes these uh, antagonisms are, are, are kind of lying dormant that, that can be um, exposed once again in times of trouble. Yeah, so the, the pieces of legislation and policy that facilitated the creation of these initial Asiatic bazaars or these coolie locations as they were called it laid the foundation for the Group Areas Act of 1950, which was an apartheid-era legislation, right? At its very core, that act was an attempt to completely sever the interaction between the different race groups in the country. Um, so it created residential and social segregation based on race. And it's often been argued, and I agree with this, that this act caused the greatest amount of damage to South African society, and its effects are still felt to this very day. Uh, and many have argued that the initial purpose of the Group Areas Act 
was initially intended to ruin Indians in South Africa, particularly, right, to force them to repatriate. And one of the ministers of Indian Affairs was reported to have said that um, after the effects of the Group Areas Act had been felt, that Indians would be only too pleased to get out of South Africa. Uh, so it was a particularly atrocious law and resulted in the forced removals of Indians and other people of color uh, who were already settled in specific areas and they were sent to inferior housing in areas distinctly set aside for that for their particular race groups, right? So uh, with regard to Indians specifically, approximately 80% in Durban were affected by this uh, systematic execution of uh, the program of forced removals. Uh, so the Group Areas Act was rescinded in 1991, but the damage to communities and families had already been done. And that the stark inequality is still evident in the spatial and racial landscape of South Africa today. And you can see it in, in any uh, city or community that, uh, that you visit. We still have uh, former, we, we, we have what we refer to as former white areas because these areas have, uh, you'll, you'll see Indian, colored and black people now purchasing homes there, those who can afford it. But you will never hear of a, a former Indian area or a former black area because these are predominantly still very homogenous in their uh, uh, makeup. It's fascinating, but also frightening that it, it endures so much or, or the legacy of what's gone on for so long. But um, you, you, you mentioned in passing uh, some recent trouble in, in South Africa. So uh, South Africa has been the location for uh, various kind of nativist violence in the last 20 years or so, usually not against uh, those of Indian background, but uh, against those from, from neighboring countries who have come or even sometimes of def different ethnicities. Could you tell us kind of what, what, what drives this and, and who who is targeted at different times? Is it is it always... Um, you know, basically a moving target that it can be Zimbabweans, you know, 15 years ago, but then uh, people from Mozambique or somewhere else uh, more recently, but the rhetoric remains the same. Absolutely. So the main targets of xenophobic violence in South Africa are foreign African migrants, right? But many South Africans who are seen to be foreign under certain circumstances are also targeted. So you'll have uh, Shangan, for instance, or Pedi, uh, who are during the protests are not, uh, no one's asking you to see your South African ID at that particular point in time, right? So everyone is, uh, is, is a target at that particular point in time. So uh, the usual anti-immigrant sentiment uh, that's displayed around the world of they are stealing our jobs is also prevalent here as well. So, and I would say the sentiment is is driven by, and this is no excuse to justify the violent uh, behavior, uh, but it's driven by the failure of the government post-1994 to provide what it promised in terms of employment, in terms of adequate resources for the majority of South Africans, basic necessities like electricity, running water, housing, and basic education. So like I've been saying, we have to remember that South Africa presently is still a deeply unequal society. So it's not hard to fathom then that it would not be difficult to convince like this vulnerable underclass to participate in these uh, criminal acts of violence. So if you ask the question of whether it's bottom up or whether it's coming from, um, you know, politicians, um, you know, 
it's not hard to convince uh, uh, people who are who have been uh, oppressed for most of their lives and including into a democratic uh, uh, society uh, to engage in these acts and to blame others for their fate, right? So foreigners are seen as thriving while citizens are not. Uh, and the expression of anger, though, is directed at others who are not us. And like I said, in some cases, uh, those who are seen for generations to have been unfairly benefiting in a land not their own, right? Such as South Africans of Indian descent. So uh, South, Africans are sometimes, South Africans of Indian descent sometimes are seen to be wealthier, which is a false narrative that has been perpetuated for generations. So South Africans too um, seen as undeserving are also victimized, right? So there's this anti-Indian sentiment which is resonant uh, with the apartheid and the political eras before it. it still exists, like I said earlier. And they are perceived in certain circumstances as people who are essentially associated with another country. We're ending on a negative note in many respects when we're talking about nativism in the last couple of decades, but that's the reality in many respects that nativism endures. And I think you've done an excellent job in highlighting this history and uh, especially pertaining to the Indian community in South Africa and how it developed from 1860 up to the present day. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us today. We really appreciate it and take care. No, thank you so much for having me and I enjoyed speaking to you as well. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media. And if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie.